do we get from Romeo to Tinder? Clement Knox joins us to talk about his new history of seduction. Looking for a good novel to discuss and debate this month? Elizabeth Egan will be here to talk about Indelicacy, her February pick for group text. Plus, our critics will join us for the latest in literary criticism. Today is Valentine's Day, February 14th, and this is the Book Review Podcast in the New York Times. I'm Pamela Paul. Clement Knox joins us now from London. His new book is called Seduction, A History from the Enlightenment to the Present. Clement, thanks for being here. Thanks so much, Pamela. So your day job, I want to start there because you have a book-oriented day job. You work as a nonfiction buyer at Waterstones, which is, of course, a major British bookstore chain. What's your job like there? What do you do? So uh, there are two of us managing nonfiction, and there are about 280 stores. Uh, my job really is just to get the, the right books in the right stores. I'm kind of responsible for history, philosophy, politics, popular science. I mean, about nine categories overall. And so we deal a lot with the publishers and a lot with the booksellers as well. Did you get to pick which categories you were responsible for? No. When I got the job, I was just assigned them. And then there was kind of a reshuffle a few years ago, and I got a few more categories as well. It kind of worked out perfectly because it more or less aligns with what I'm interested in reading and what I'm interested in writing. So you're deciding which books go into Waterstones, the chain, and into which stores, and how many copies are ordered? Exactly. That's you. So that's a very powerful position. It's, it's very structured. It's very fair how we, how we do it. And there's a you know, constant communication between us, the publishers, the stores, and sometimes even the, uh, the authors as well. We do it in a very even-handed, rational way, and there's no, there's no kind of mystery as to what we're doing. The publishers will, will understand. What's your typical day like? A lot of meetings, a lot of looking at sales figures, a lot of reading of publicity plans, and back and forth with people who want us to buy their book or buy more of their book or buy even more of their book. So are you living months ahead of time looking at what are the books coming out this fall? Oh, oh, yeah. We're tasked with trying to look as far ahead as possible. So we're about to start looking at September, October, um, November. Uh, on average, we're normally thinking three months ahead at least. And what happened with your book? Were you the decider? Like, we're going to order 100,000 copies of Seduction. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I wish. No, it was my, my boss has taken over that completely. And I don't read the emails. I don't look at anything. I try and pretend it's not happening. It's good to stay in a total state of ignorance about one's own book. I agree. Yeah, very but let's much so. talk about <laughs> let's talk about your book. This may seem like perhaps a silly question, but let's define seduction exactly. I mean, how is seduction separate from courtship? How is it different from something maybe more creepy and less mutual like sexual harassment? Like what is seduction? I think the crucial aspect is that seduction is psychological. And it assumes this kind of like confrontation between the, the minds and the, the passions of, of two different um, individuals. In English law, there was a whole body of law to do with seduction, which I discussed in, in some detail, and which was later, it, was, it came to America with the, with the Mayflower and was developed there in, in quite an extraordinary way. And in those laws, there was a distinction made between, between rape, which is obviously a, uh, uh, we all know what that is, and that is coercive and, and violent. And seduction was seen as distinct from rape in that it assumed that consent had been obtained, but that consent was in some way vitiated or somehow degraded by the techniques by which it was won. So seduction carries that burden that somehow 
someone's been won over and perhaps the methods used to win them over are uh, underhand. But that's only one definition. There is a whole other definition which would say, you know, it's just about courtship and game playing and it's, it's all sort of fun and this sort of, it's all this kind of dance, which is a dance of sexual freedom. Did you focus on that fun dance in this book or did you <laughs> cover the full gamut? The way the book is kind of structured is that there's like a dialectic going on and sort of one half of the history of seduction is about people worrying about sexual freedom, worrying about things going wrong, about the collision of desire and power, the uh, capacity for abuse and wrongdoing. That is one half of the history. And the other half is about sexual freedom being this exciting, enjoyable thing, which, which is very sort of lighthearted and people um, you know, pursuing their own desires without the interference of the, you know, the church or the government. So the book is kind of structured around that kind of dichotomy and that conflict between our two views of what sexual freedom is and what, and what that means for seduction. Your subtitle is A History from the Enlightenment to the Present. So you're focusing mostly on the modern era, but let's start just briefly with that pre-modern era. Talk about what our earliest ideas of seduction were, maybe perhaps grounded in mythology, and then how that changed as we moved into the Judeo-Christian era. The reason I start in the Enlightenment is not because seduction didn't exist before 1700. It is because that's when the seduction narrative, as we understand it, was born. And the book is about this very powerful, strange, and modern thing, the seduction narrative, which was basically invented in the 18th century and was the product of a response to a whole new wave of ideas about the human mind, about what we now think of as feminism or proto-feminism, and also about the, uh, the kind of discovery of sexual freedom as part of the broader celebration of freedom in the Enlightenment. And before then, you had a situation where sexuality was heavily policed, it was subject to uh, legal and religious interrogation. And, you know, in America, of course, you had the, you know, the Puritans were very big on sexual policing, but also in, in the rest of Europe as well. And over the course of the 18th century, that whole value system changed. By the end of the 18th century, sexual freedom was, was taken for granted. And to be clear, sexual freedom for them was not the sexual freedom that we now cherish or worry about. That really meant that women got to choose who they married. That's what the foundation of sexual freedom was. And that explains basically every Jane Austen novel, for instance. That is the underpinning of all the plots there and of plenty of other novels besides. And then more generally, a kind of increasingly laissez-faire attitude towards male sexuality in particular. So you see the, the rise of the double standards, uh, all the uh, spectacularly bad behavior of the rakes of London and Paris and Venice. You say that there were three modes of thought that really gave rise to the modern seduction narrative, liberalism, materialism, and feminism. Let's talk about liberalism, for example. How does that bring us what we consider to be seduction as it is today. In John Locke's letter of toleration, he, um, he makes this interesting comment where he says that basically everyone is going to have to look after their own, their, the prospects of their own souls. So liberalism is no longer going to tell people how to um, live their lives and what to do. And instead, they're going to have to have their own moral accounting. And if in the religious view, if they've been living badly, that will be uh, dealt with in the afterworld. It's not going to be dealt with by the government in the present. And obviously, if you think about it, back then, because up until that point, they'd, be, they'd been policing sexuality quite a lot, and sexuality was connected with sin, 
once you're saying, okay, everyone's going to look after their own moral well-being and the government's going to step out of it, the second and third order consequences of that include a increasingly hands-off attitude towards sexuality. And basically, people are left to make their own decisions and see how, how that ends up. So it's not that people sat around in the late 17th century and said, we're going to invent liberalism and as one and that includes sexual freedom. Mm-hmm. It's just sexual freedom flowed quite logically from this, this view that we're not going to try and make everyone live the way we want them to. And that's because they tried that in 17th century Europe, and the result had been horrific bloodshed and wars and everything else. And they wanted just to move beyond that. How did seduction flow from materialism? Again, because all these philosophers like, like Locke and Hume, they were kind of operating on the assumption that we're living in a godless world. Mm-hmm. And they, they were very careful how they framed that, you know, and Voltaire as well. They were very careful how they framed that because, of course, you weren't really allowed to be an atheist. But once you get to the position where we're saying, okay, there are not angels and devils and there's no Holy Spirit abroad in the world, and instead it's just individuals with brains perceiving reality, once you make those leaps, you can move from move forward away from this moralistic view of sexuality and towards an idea and a, psych- a psychological view of reality. And that's what seduction narratives dramatize. It's this internal monologue about reason, about passion, about desire. And that basically makes the entire genre of the novel possible. And if you read these early novels like Samuel Richardson, who I discussed at some length, those books nowadays are more or less unreadable. Right. But at the time, they were uh, well, revolutionary. <laughs> if you're named Pamela, you're essentially forced to read Samuel Richardson. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> it comes with okay, the... So you, you read it then? I have read it and, you know, Shamala. So, yes, I've been down that unfortunate path. <laughs> to what extent is the history of seduction also a history of power and power dynamics? One way of looking at it is that it's not a matter of um, about power. One way of looking at it is that, in fact, sexual freedom is empowering, and people who practice sexual freedom are taking control of their lives and are sort of free, liberated individuals. And that's been a strain of thought since the Enlightenment, you know, since Henry Fielding, Mary Wollstonecraft, Percy Shelley, Mary Shelley, all that coterie, and all the way up to the present, where people, you know, say, well, people shouldn't be telling me how to live my life, you know. So, and, that, and that part of it basically rejects the idea that seduction is about power. And it says that actually seduction is about, about freedom and choice. But obviously power is a, a complex thing to discuss, but at root it's about coercion. And seduction is about agency. And as soon as power collides with desire, especially in situations where, you know, there's sexual inequality, there's economic inequality, there's racial inequality, very quickly we can see how seduction courtship can shade into something darker. You go into issues around race and seduction, and in particular America's laws and attitudes around race in the book. Talk about those parts of the book. America in the 19th century developed this very extensive body of state laws policing seduction. And eventually America had a federal law, the Mann Act, which was essentially a seduction law in, by everything but name. And in the American South, clearly it wasn't just a question of the law. There were lynchings, and these lynchings were often justified by reference to alleged sexual assaults or um, you know, interracial relationships happening. And that, that is true all the way up to Emmett Till. So it's not just that there were seduction laws which were racialized. Clearly there was a very serious and horrifying 
epidemic of racial violence, which often had a, a sexual subtext. But in the case of the laws, the laws were designed to empower a kind of racial scrutiny of sexual relationships. And the Mann Act was used to, in California, it was used to prosecute lots of um, Japanese immigrants who had interracial relationships in the North, East, and the Midwest, where there were lots of Jewish immigrants or um, Polish or German immigrants. It was used to kind of put further scrutiny on those communities. And then the story I tell about Jack Johnson, who's the first black heavyweight champion of the world, it was used to basically hound this man who they couldn't lynch, although there were several attempts to do so. And so they tried to, to get him in the courts. Did you keep the book focused on heterosexual seduction or do you cover same-sex relationships as well? I mentioned, obviously, in the, the Enlightenment, there was this celebration of sexual freedom. I should have put a coda to that, which obviously it was a celebration of heterosexual freedom. Homosexual freedom was not tackled until um, the 1960s and 70s and beyond. So I do keep a focus on, on heterosexual relationships, but the simple reason is that that seduction narrative of itself was born about this new idea of celebrating sexual freedom, but that sexual freedom did not include same-sex love. I'm curious about the origin of this book. Like, was this something that you began before you were at Waterstones as the nonfiction or a, one of the nonfiction buyers? Or did this kind of evolve? Like, why hasn't anyone written about this? I'm getting all these other books about these other things, but there's no good history of seduction. The first seed of this book was when I was living in America. I just finished grad school in D.C., and I was just reading novels like Dangerous Liaisons and A Hero of Our Time. And I kind of kept on coming across this theme of the seduction narrative, and it just wouldn't go away. And it kind of gnawed away at me for several years. And I kind of uncovered this whole history of the seduction laws, which I found were fascinating and, and weird. And then, of course, in, in our own time, a lot of things have happened with the rise of, you know, the pickup artists, online dating, all the rest of it. I just had this sort of intuition that there was a story there and it was a story larger than just what was going on now that it had a history and yeah i was pretty much convinced that every day i'd open the newspaper and someone had written the book but they never did so i thought i'd give it a go well this segment is going up on valentine's day so it feels appropriate to ask you about your favorite seduction narrative Dangerous Liaisons as a novel is, is, is absolutely amazing. I would recommend that to anyone. It, it, it's incredible to believe that it was actually written two centuries ago. And there have been several great adaptions of it. And there were two in the 1980s. And then there was Cruel Intentions made out of it in the 90s, which I, I think is a fantastic film still. And I mentioned briefly A Hero of Our Time by Mikhail Lomontov. Again, I think just everyone should read that book. It's, it was inc it's incredible. And the Russians were really heavily influenced by the English seduction narrative. They had all read Samuel Richardson. They'd read Pamela and Clarissa. Richardson is name-checked in Eugene Onegin. And of course, they were all obsessed with Byron, who was a kind of almost mythical seducer in his own lifetime. And so the whole Russian tradition wouldn't really exist without those two figures. And you see it in Lermontov and Pushkin and also in Tolstoy as well. All right. Well, that gives plenty of people to read over Valentine's Day. Maybe not most people's chosen activity on this particular day, but if, if you are alone with a book, those are the ones to pick up, in addition to, of course, Seduction. Clement, thanks so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me. Clement Knox is the author of Seduction, a history from the Enlightenment to the present.
So here's a request for our listeners. I get lots of feedback from you, some complaints, lots of kind words. Really appreciate it. You can always reach me directly at books at nytimes.com. I will write back. But you can also, if you feel moved to do so, review us on any platform where you download the podcast, whether that's iTunes or Stitcher or Google Play or somewhere else. Please feel free to review us and, of course, email us at any time. Joining us now, my colleague Elizabeth Egan, here to talk about her pick for group text. It's called Indelicacy by Amina Kane. Liz, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. So those who are not familiar yet with this new column of yours, monthly group text, explain what it is. I will be picking one book per month, usually a novel, occasionally a memoir, that will work for book clubs to read, talk about, mull over. And the idea is this is a new kind of approach to book groups where we're trying to go for a more casual vibe and relieve members of the stress, of the planning. We feel it's hard enough to pick the date for a group to meet. So the idea is we are removing some of the pressure of choosing a book to read. And you don't actually have to be in a book club. Absolutely not. And these will all be books that are just fun to talk about with friends, even if you're not in a formal setting. A book to hand to someone that you run into or recommend to someone you run into, and you are also more than welcome to read them independently. And you can, thus the title, group text your friends about this book. You don't yes. even have to get together no, in a you real can, living room. you can room. remove all human contact if Excellent. you'd like. I'm <laughs> not we... advocating that, but you're more than welcome there to. There are many readers who would enjoy that part yes. of it very much. All right, so let's talk about this book, Indelicacy by Amina Kane. Is this a debut? No. Amina Kane has written two short story collections, but this is her first novel and it's her first book from a big publisher. It has just come out from FSG and it is her longest work yet, although it's very short. And what's it about? It's about a woman who, when we meet her, is working in a museum as a cleaner of the museum. She's a mostly unnamed narrator. I think her name is said once in the book. And she's working at an unnamed museum, which could be the Met here in New York City, in an unnamed city. It seems purposely very vague in the best way. And while she's working at this job, she meets a man who she marries and expects him to be the ticket to the creative life that she's dreamed of having. She's an aspiring writer and goes home at the beginning of the book to her very sparse apartment. I imagine it as like an artist's garret. And she writes every night. And she thinks that marrying this man who she may or may not love love does not seem to be a big part of the equation, she thinks that new life will unlock a level of creative freedom that she hasn't had before because she's had to work so hard. And it's a novel about being careful what you wish for, about ambition, creativity, and also female friendship. One of the ideas behind group text is that these books raise issues or questions that people will want to talk about. What questions did you sort of ask yourself, wonder, while you were reading it that you thought, you know, I need someone else to kind of discuss this with? Well, let me rewind a little bit. I started reading this book in the waiting room 
at the dentist's office. And in midlife, I've found that the dentist is a place I love to visit because it's 20 minutes of complete peace and freedom and I don't owe answers to anybody and there, you can't check your phone and you're, you know, you're just sort of at the mercy of someone else. It's kind of, it sounds a little bit depressing. It does sound depressing, Liz. I'm sorry. I know, but it's <laughs> like I, I enjoy being off the radar like that. And I started reading this book in that moment before I was about to have my teeth cleaned. And as I was lying there in the dentist's chair, I started thinking about this conversation that I have again and again with my friends. What if we had more time? What if we weren't beholden to kids or jobs or any obligations, no matter how wonderful they might be? And this book, to me, walks down that road of what if you factored out money what if you had all the time in the world to do the thing that you please? And to me, that scenario leads to an interesting conversation with friends about how that plays out for this narrator. And how does it play out? I mean, just a little bit without giving too much away. It does not play out very well. The book has been described as a ghost story without a ghost. And it has this fable-like quality. The narrator becomes completely disconnected from the world that she had been part of, minus the the churn and the thrash of daily life. She's lonely. She's She begins to envy the woman who is cleaning her house, who she's paying to clean her house. I'm making it sound very depressing. It's actually not depressing. And it's kind of funny. The narrator says the things that you think but would never say. She's just, she's kind of unplugged. But the creative piece of her life does not play out the way that she hopes. And her writing does not flourish the way she wants it to. One of the things I love about your group text column is that in addition to providing some prompts and discussion questions without plot spoilers, very important, you also offer some suggestions for further reading. What are some of the books that you recommended people read while reading this book, and why? The first is a book called Happenstance by a Canadian author named Carol Shields, who is really one of my favorites. If anyone has not read her, she's worth discovering. We should say that there is a new prize in her name, the Carol Shields Prize, that just was begun this year for women from Canada and North America, writers of fiction. But go on. So Happenstance is the story of a marriage. And the first half of the book is the marriage told from the woman's perspective. And the second half is the same story told from the man's perspective. And it's a nice companion to Indelicacy because this also, aside from being a story about creativity and friendship and ambition and class, is also a story about a marriage. And I found myself wondering as I read what the husband's perspective was, which, of course, is not the point of the book. I wasn't craving it too much, but, you know, I wondered what his perspective on this very odd marriage was. And Carol Shields' book kind of scratched that itch. Another one that I recommended this month is a book called Department of Speculation by Jenny Ophal, who has a new book that just came out called Weather, which I think you talked about on the podcast last week. And it is, like Indelicacy, a short and kind of PC book. It's told in short interludes, which is 
a bit of a trend right now that I think Jenny may have kicked off. And PC like fragments, not yes, PC like no, political correctness. No, okay. this is not a politically correct book at all. PC like pieces. And Amina Cain has a textured approach in a sort of similar way that I really love. Also another slim novel, like and Jenny yes. Ophel, we should say, because that yes. is important, I think, for book clubs, the difference between having a selection like this versus having a 500-page dense novel. Yes, and I should add, nothing about this book is anything I'm usually attracted to. I love long books. I like books about very deep relationships, very transparent narrators, family stories. This book is short, disconnected. The narrator is very distant, and yet something about it felt so fulfilling to me. You could read this book in 45 minutes and still feel filled up at the end. What drew you to it in the first place? Pamela, I'm just going to be honest with you. The cover is what drew me to it. I really just love this red and blue pattern on the cover. That is not normally how I pick a book. But I love it has a little trim size and it fits. I just I just love the look of it. And it seemed like the perfect book to bring to the dentist's office. <laughs> I, I actually want to dwell on that for a minute because I'm interested in the extent to which covers can draw you in. I mean, for me, it's often titles. I very frequently buy a book or I am prompted to look into a book by the title. I'm the same way, and I really love a short title. There was a, a while where there was a trend towards these long titles that shall remain nameless, but I appreciate the simplicity of Indelicacy as a title. But not only am I drawn by the covers of books, I'm also drawn by the texture of the cover. There's a certain feel of a book that I just love, kind of a matte cover with a pattern on it like this one. I'm embarrassed to admit that, but it's it's a fact. One of the reasons I asked you about the suggested reading is that there's often an element of, if you like this, you might like that. So it sounds like Jenny Ophel fans might also appreciate this work. Are there other writers or books that you thought of? I also thought of Min Jin Lee's first book, Not Pachinko, which I think is the one that she's best known for at this point. She wrote a book years ago called Free Food for Millionaires. Great title. Yes, that is one of the better long titles. And it's a book about a Korean woman struggling also with the issue of ambition and trying to propel herself into a world that she wasn't born into, which reminded me of Indelicacy. Last thing that I love about your column for now, um, although there are other things, but you start off by giving people a reason, like why this book? What do you think will draw readers in most with this book? If you had to give like an elevator pitch, a podcast elevator pitch. I would say that because I'm writing this column with book groups in mind, one of the reasons to read this book, one of many reasons to read this book, is that it's a story about friendship and what happens when you try to separate yourself from the world that you know and love and live kind of a disconnected life. It's also a book about creativity, what sparks creativity, what drives creativity. And for me, I finished it feeling 
eager to do something creative. I, I was very eager to write the review almost immediately after I finished the book, which to me is a very good sign. Well, that's a strong sell, Liz. Yes. <laughs> Thanks, Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Elizabeth Egan is an editor here at The Book Review, and she writes our monthly group text column. And the book she recommends this month is Indelicacy by Amina Kane. Joining us now, our critics, Parl Sagal, Dwight Garner, and Jennifer Sly. Hi, guys. Hi, Pamela. Hey, Pamela. All right. This is a fun week because two of you can talk about the same book but from two different angles because, Parl, you wrote a profile of the novelist Jenny Offal in the New York Times Magazine, and Dwight, you reviewed her novel, Weather, her third book, for us. So let us start with your review, Dwight. What did you think of the book? It, I mean, she's a very talented writer, for sure. And, and you know, uh, the, the novel is called Weather by Jenny Offal. It's about a young woman in New York City. She's a librarian. She's a struggling writer. She has a sort of underemployed husband. And, and it's about a young woman with a kind of frazzled life. You know, she's trying to keep it together. She's got a brother who's a recovering drug addict. She worries about the climate. She kind of almost becomes a doomsday prepper, you know, which, which my wife has that element in her, too. But you don't, you don't come to a Jenny Offal novel for plot. She dispenses, in her last two novels anyway, her narrative of these neat little discrete paragraphs. They're like stanzas or like, as I say in my review, like individual cigarette packs that keep coming out of the machine. She's a very funny and distinctive writer. I will say, and Parlin and I can, can talk about this a bit, I, I will say that I resist slightly her immediate instant canonization among younger fiction writers. I, I think a fair number of the little paragraphs in this new novel misfire somewhat. They're not as funny as they might be or not as wise as they might be, and they sort of sit there in the spotlight and sweat sometimes. But I definitely think she's, she's a writer really worth keeping an eye on. And I, my question for Parl is this. Parl is, is profiled a lot of writers, as have I. And I wonder if meeting Jenny Offal made you change any of your perceptions? Did, did it give you any more insight about her? Did, did it make you read her differently? That's such a good question. I think it made me read her differently in the sense that in her her books, I mean, you get to this point so beautifully in your review, they're so they're so inviting. You know, they are in these little stanzas, they've got little jokes in them. But when I met her, I think I was able to see, I think, the questions that she's asking, the things that she's interested in. You know, when you go to a writer's house and you see their bookshelves and, you know, they talk about where this fact comes from. So I think a lot of that... I think I understood that a little bit better. But it's interesting. I like that. I like your point about the, the canonization of awful. And I agree. I think that in certain ways, Department of Speculation, her previous book, which was one of our top 10 books of the year a few years ago, was a bit more tighter and a bit more propulsive in a way. But I think the looseness, the bagginess of this book is deliberate. I think so. But in terms of canonization, Laurie Moore apparently said this thing that was very funny about Jenny Awful. She's like, I love her work, but I hate that my students love her work. Almost like the style is so contagious and you see so many people working with fragments and doing it really badly these days. Yes, yes. And I'm, I'm, I'm generally sick of it. So when I come to Jenny, even, yeah, and some of them work, some of them feel a bit more tighter and sharper than others, but there's still something that she's doing in the space between the fragments that feels different to me. Was there anything, I'm always interested in writers who differ from the work on the page that, you know, where something about them personally just surprises you or just strikes you as, as, as not aligned with how they write? Like, was there anything about Jenny that felt to you kind of out of sync with the work that you read? Oh, no. I mean, I think that 
the, the best parts of her work. It's so intimate. It's so funny. You feel like you're meeting somebody who'll tell you everything. And she's saying that a lot, like a lot of the things that we're thinking all the time about our own children, about other people's children, about our own feelings of passivity. And she's just, she's just like that. I mean, one of the parts I write in my profile that we just could not, we were a mess when we were walking around together. We got on the wrong train. We would take the, she's just, it's the same quality in her books, this endless conversation, fact-packed. And no, she was very sort of continuous with the book, I feel. She has one of the uh, great author photos of all time on her novel. It's, it's just this novel. It's like her face is making this look. It's like, give me a break. It's great. <laughs> yeah, she has an impish kind of look. <laughs> she looks like such a great character actor or something. You know, it's just a great look. Dwight, do you sort of see this this popularity of this form sort of spreading among younger writers too? Or is this just something that I'm hypersensitive and kind of grouchy about? And older writers as well. I'm, I'm getting set to review this week. It'll be online next week. The new novel from Colin McCann, and he mm-hmm. does it as which I'm not going to talk about yet. It's so rare that it's done really, really well. One of the ways it was done incredibly well recently was in The New Yorker. There are critics. It, it's a Stel, Peter Sheldahl. Am I saying Sheld- that correctly? Sheldahl. Forgive me. Beautiful little memoir he published in The New Yorker. And I hope there's oh, more. Oh, that essay. That essay, and it was written in that sort of, you know, that little segments, and it was beautiful. But yeah, Parl, I completely agree. It's one of those things where I might say this in my review. One of the things this style does is that it exaggerates a writer's gifts, and it also exaggerates their drawbacks, I think. Mm -hmm. It it really Mm -hmm. hangs you out on the line in this funny way. It's a style that if you don't really nail it, I think it it can come back to bite you a little bit. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the things that I like just sort of seeing her process is that she waits so long with a lot of these fragments and she moves them around. Physically, she moves them around. She prints out lots of these little paragraphs that she's working with. And at one point, she put them on poster board, you know, when she was stuck in the process and just kept moving them around, kept thinking about it. And you have to also resist that kind of the faux profundity of these fragments floating in space. Everything just seems very profound and serious and can feel very monotonous. But she constantly is trying to think about how to charge the spaces between them and kind of almost score it like a like a song, like it has to reach a particular point. Jen, you did not review Jenny Offal this <laughs> I, week, I and you did I not didn't. write anything a, about her. I reviewed a very different kind of book. The book that I reviewed last week was Unmaking the Presidency by Susan Hennessy and Benjamin Wittes. And You know, there are two national security pundits who run a blog called Lawfare, which, you know, I think a lot of people who have been paying attention to the executive during the Trump era really pay attention to what has been said on that blog. And so they've written a new book about Trump, and we've seen many, 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 many books about Trump. Especially you, Jen. (laughs) You've seen many. You've seen them all. Yeah, so, so we've seen a number of books in the last three years. And what makes this book different, I think, is, first of all, they really focus on how Trump is changing the institution of executive power and the presidency. And, you know, what they argue is that he actually has a vision for the office, which I think is an interesting choice of word, because I think I first saw it and I thought, well, wait a second, President Trump has a vision, even though constantly he says things that seem contradictory, that seem just sort of off the cuff. And what they say is actually, no, that's part of the vision that he has for it. I think the traditional vision of the presidency whether or not one agrees with the policies of whoever is in office is that the person there cares somewhat about governing at the very minimum, that 
he or maybe at some point she would have a vision for what they think the public good is. And so what the authors say is in the case of President Trump is that he sees it as something that's more of an expressive office, something that's supposed to reflect his power, his preferences. And so you see the way that this plays out. I think in a perfect world, he would like his policies to actually happen. When he says that he wants them to happen, they'll happen. So for instance, the travel ban that he implemented by executive order really quickly after he was first inaugurated in 2017. And the way that that played out was that it was a total mess. I mean, it was completely shambolic. You could see that the order was just thrown out. He said something and then people scrambled to try to put it into effect. So that for somebody like him, he's really interested in the theatrical gesture. And what they say, though, is that as buffoonish, I guess, as some of these things seem, is that they will eventually have real-life policy implications, which we've seen with the travel ban, that it's actually affected people, it's harmed people, but that in the moment, what he's interested in doing is just showing what his power is. And so, you know, they wrote this book before all the stuff that was happening with the phone call to the Ukrainian president came to light. And so they were going to press when the impeachment trial got started. And so they added a postscript where they say that that was sort of the distillation of everything that they talk about in the book, where you just see Trump wanted to get reelected. And so he had this phone call the day after Mueller gave his testimony before Congress that Trump made this phone call with Zelensky and he requested him to investigate a political rival. And so you you just sort of see that he has this instinctual sense for the kind of power that he has or would like to have in that office and that that will actually change things, I think, especially if he gets reelected. One question I always have about Trump books is that whether you're a supporter of the president or whether you are not a supporter of the president, that the kind of books that you read deliver on what you already know about the president. If you're a supporter of the president and you're reading a book that is laudatory, you you already know all of this, right? It's just confirming everything that you know with books about the president from people who maybe are not fans of the president. You're maybe learning some more detail about things that, that people are saying or are alleged to have said or he is – a been alleged to have said, but it kind of confirms everything that you already know. So I'm interested always in books that say things that you didn't already know. So the first question I have with this book is like, did you learn something new? Yeah, well, you know, one of the things that they do is they put Trump in a historical perspective. And, you know, they, they point out, they, they give instances of cases where presidents have used executive power in a way that today we might be shocked by. So, you know, there were secret land purchases that Washington made. And Ulysses Grant fired a special prosecutor when the special prosecutor was about to indict Grant's personal secretary. So there were all these instances where presidents have done things, but over time, the reaction to what presidents did established a set of norms that I think that we're operating by today. But, you know, those norms can change and it, it can change depending on whose office. And I think one of the things that they, they've highlighted, which I had never really thought about before, is that if you look at his tweets and they say, you know, you should look at his tweets because presidential speech, even if he just says stuff, it actually does make a difference eventually. The thing that he seems to like to highlight a lot, and he did this actually just, I think, yesterday or the day before again, where he'll say something about absolute right. 
Mm-hmm. He has an absolute right to do something. I have an absolute right to pardon myself. You know, that's something that he said. And those are the powers that you see and you see how it plays out where eventually Trump just feels drawn to those powers. Those are the powers that he's going to push and nudge to see what he can do, what he's allowed to do, what his fellow Republicans in the Senate will allow him to do. And so I think now that we've seen with the acquittal, which I can't believe it was just a week ago, (laughs) which is incredible to think about. You know, one week ago, he was acquitted in the impeachment trial. And we already see, you know, a series of firings, a series of things that Trump wants to get done. And he's saying, okay, I can do it. It's not surprising, but it's shocking. Isn't Wittes the guy who was famous on Twitter for every time there was some anti-Trump news for blowing off his little cannon in his backyard and posting clips of his cannon blasting? Oh, actually, yes, you're right. And he's also somebody who's very close to James Comey, the former FBI director. And I think in the story that the Times ran about the firing of Comey. I mean, Wittes was was quoted because he he was in touch with Comey during the whole process, basically. Yeah, he seems like an interesting character. Yeah. One of the things about this book is that they make very clear that they they're very critical of the president. But at the same time, in terms of their politics, I mean, they have experience in a world where they just sort of see the way in which executive power works. And I think that that's also something, you know, in this sort of daily barrage of, you know, there's always a new thing that we hear that Trump has said to somebody, that he's asked somebody to do, but they put it in this big historical perspective, which I think is actually quite helpful. It's also helpful to see how the actual office changes, because I think no matter what happens, I mean, at some point, whether he gets reelected or not, there will be a point at which he is no longer president. So what has he done to the office and what does that mean? I think that's really helpful to think about. And they do it in a really lucid, I mean, they're very methodical and it's quite, quite scary for that reason, I think. One last question, a kind of inside baseball question. But Dwight, you have reviewed a few books for us sort of within the larger Trump world. Jen, you have done more than a few. Parla, I don't think you've done one. Shh, I've escaped. I've escaped. It's no. It's <laughs> I think next up we have Parl Sagel. But really, do you avoid reading these books? Oh, no, no, no. I mean, do I avoid? I don't. I, have I read? I am reading a very stable genius based on Dwight's great review. But no, I, I don't avoid reading them. But, you know, you know as well as anybody, like, we have so much to read at any given point. So I'm usually reading what I'm reviewing and sort of around that. But I know my time is going to come. Yes, I was going to say, <laughs> we're all looking at you, Carl, in this moment. All right, as ever, thank you so much, Carl Sigel, Jennifer Salai, and Dwight Garner for joining me. Thanks, Pamela. Remember, there's more at nytimes.com slash books. And you can always write to us at books at nytimes.com. I write back, not right away, but I do. The Book Review Podcast is produced by the great Pedro Rosado from Headstepper Media with a major assist from my colleague, John Williams. Thanks for listening. For The New York Times, I'm Pamela Paul. Pamela Paul.